Well, hello and welcome to the uh, first IFSI session of 2023. My name is David Fisher. I'm a partner at CM Murray uh, and I'm chairing today's panel on confidential information uh, misuse by executives, protection and prevention for founders, an area that forms a, a large part of the, uh, the work that I do. And I'm pleased to be joined on the panel today by three more uh, experts in the area. We have Peter De Maria, an employment lawyer and senior partner at Doyle Clayton, based in London. Amit Bindra, an employment lawyer and partner in the Prince Law Firm, based in Chicago. And Claudia Aliage, a digital forensic expert and a director in Alvarez & Marcel, the consulting firm based in London. I'm a creature of habit, and uh, as many of you joining from uh, CM Murray will know, Four o'clock is when I normally break off in the afternoon for tea and crumpets, hoping that this uh, change of routine isn't going to knock me off course too much and we can keep on track for the uh, for the next hour or so. I was going to start by looking at the question of what we mean by uh, confidential information and to ask uh, Peter to start with about what can be protected under English law. Now, I do actually have here a crumpet. Uh, this is the crumpet I was going to have with my, uh, with my tea. It's untoasted and unbuttered at the moment. As you see, it's got some quite nice little sort of holes in here, quite a nice little sort of spongy, uh, spongy crumper. Um, so are we talking, we talk about confidential information, are we talking just about things like secret recipes, secret formulae to make sort of products that we uh, that we all enjoy? Or is it something that's uh, that's broader than than that? Peter, over, over to you to explain, please. Well, well, thank you very much for the crumpet. That's, that's good to see. So so in English law, we're, we're fortunate enough to have quite a well-established framework in looking at what kind of information can be protected in the courts. And there's a hierarchy and where information falls on that hierarchy will tend to give us a good idea about whether it can be protected or not. And so the hierarchy begins at the top with real trade secrets. And so that would be chemical formulae, uh, technical details, designs, the kind of information within the business which has a very high degree of confidentiality. Now, below that comes a category which isn't as well protected, and that's mere confidential information. And that will be specific, sensitive commercial details belonging to the employer, which don't have the characteristics of being confidential enough to be classed as real trade secrets. And often the big tension is between employers wanting their mere confidential information to be classed as real trade secrets to give it more characteristics which can be protected in the courts. Now, below that information in the hierarchy comes the general accumulated know-how of the employee, their own skill, the experience they've acquired in performing the role. And so that is another category. And below that is the lowest level, which is information in the public domain. And it's kind of of a trivial character or already out there, so it can't be protected. And so in looking at what a trade secret is, the courts don't have a ready list, which we can just turn to in English law. Judges have often looked at a range of factors. So to sort of help us here, it's worth looking at four of those factors and going from there. So the first factor tends to be the nature of the employment. And so is the employee day in, day out handling information which is of a confidential nature? And that may impose a higher duty of confidentiality on that employee. Then there's the nature of the information itself. And so some information is more readily accepted as being by its nature confidential. And so that could be something like a secret manufacturing process or a chemical formula. Third factor is 
what happens if this information is disclosed to a competitor? And so is it going to cause real or significant harm if it falls into the wrong hands to the business? Because that could point to it being a trade secret. And then finally, it's what happens in practice. What does the employer actually do in the day-to-day -day running of the business when it comes to this information? Does the employer just merely label some information out of hope rather than in practice, label it a trade secret and try and give it protection just by giving it a label? Or does it walk the walk? Do you see the employer treating information as truly confidential, marking it as such, having limited distribution lists, and impressing upon the employee that this is to be treated as confidential and not misused? And if it's information which is kept separate and isolated from other information, then that sort of completes the list of factors that the courts will often look at in deciding whether it's a trade secret or not. Okay, that's really helpful. You, you mentioned there about the sort of skill and knowledge of the individual. How, how does that sort of come into play and how could that be something that's that's used by an individual to say, well, that's that's not secret, that's just sort of part of what I've I've gleaned from, from doing my job? Well, it comes as the third category. And so it's not as easily protectable as something relates to the business's information. And I think if we look at what can be protected, trade secrets are the most likely to be protected. Then you get to mere confidential information. Now, during and after employment are important sort of timings to think about, because during employment, the employee has a duty of fidelity and loyalty to the employer, and so shouldn't be misusing that knowledge of acquired running the business and their skill for anyone other than their employer. So during employment, you can protect those top three categories. The difficulty arises after employment, because how do you justify protecting your business from someone being free to apply their trade elsewhere? Mm. And so it's not going to fall to be a trade secret, then using a confidentiality clause is not going to get you home in terms of trying to protect uh, you know, the employees free to go elsewhere, subject to other clauses in the contract, and apply their trade. Amit, how does how does all of that compare with the uh, with the approach typically taken in the in, in the US in your experience? It's, it's similar in the United States. The on the legal side, there's going to be several laws that can come into play. For now, I'll just talk about the Trade Secrets Act, which is similar to how Peter described it. Um, information is going to be a trade secret if it's sufficiently secret and a company is deriving economic value. And on the state side, there's going to be laws at the state level. So Illinois has its own Trade Secrets Act. Michigan has its own Trade Secrets Act, et cetera. And then also there's a federal law as well now, um, the Defend Fair Trade Secrets Act. And so that part, I think, is pretty, sounds pretty similar to what Peter is describing. Um, separately from that, a company could have an employee sign a confidentiality agreement, a contract that says this is how we're going to define what is confidential. Um, this is what you can't take, what you, you know, et cetera. Those clauses, candidly, are pretty broad. Um, they're going to cover what the company will define as, I'm going to say, everything <laughs> that they've given to the employee. And so within that, there's a broad scope from a contract standpoint, and then the remedies would be contractual. An exception traditionally is going to be, this was already public information. It's not really confidential. It's not ours, et cetera. And some of these things overlap too. So for example, and I'm sure it's probably similar in London as well, to establish that there is a trade secret, you have to establish you're protecting the information, kind of what Peter was describing. Is it marked properly? Is it distributed only to minimal people? Well, one way to do that also would be to demonstrate you have a confidentiality agreement. So you may do both. And so you have may have overlapping interests. So there may be a legal claim based on a trade secret act, which has different remedies 
And also you may have a contractual claim. One, I, I don't know if this is the same over on your side of the aisle, but on our side, there is this doctrine called inevitable disclosure. And that doctrine means that an employee has a high level of knowledge, skill set, trade secrets in their mind. And if they go to a competitor, they will inevitably disclose those trade secrets. Mm -hmm. And that can lead to a statutory non-compete for some period of time based upon the act and the knowledge, even if the individual or the executive did not sign a non-compete agreement. And so there is like one landmark case that that define that theory and those there's been a couple of cases subsequent that have been expanded upon that doctrine of inevitable disclosure. And then as Peter described, we also have other claims too. There can be fiduciary duty claims, like an employee owes obligations to their employer not to compete during the employment. It could be a claim of conversion. So to some degree, it's going to depend upon what is taken. If it's client lists, et cetera, the company may say, well, oh, a computer, this has tangible value. The value is X. You've taken that from us. So we can go after you for that too. Um, so sometimes they may not even be confidential per se, but it could just be a phone, a laptop, something like that. Um, and then the state side on the federal level, there's also this act called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is essentially supposed to prevent criminal crimes of using the internet to essentially like hack a company's computers, et cetera. So it sometimes gets used in these situations as another way what I'm going to call forum shopping to get into a different type of courtroom, federal court as opposed to state court, if that's where the employer thinks they're going to have a better chance of success. So it sounds similar, to, quite frankly. I think the, the biggest piece from a definition of confidential information that gets tricky, though, is a lot of times that is going to be contractual based. And then different states will do it differently in terms of how long those restrictions can last. Like, is it in perpetuity in terms of not sharing confidential information? Is it for a couple of years, et cetera? Pragmatically, it doesn't really matter probably because if you leave an employment with confidential information, that action is going to happen quickly. So having an exit, you know, expiration date on how long you can maintain that information probably becomes moot. Okay. Well, that's essentially, and certainly from what you're saying, the sort of misuse sounds sort of similar to the uh, Computer Misuse Act provisions here that are sometimes used as well as being a, a, a way of potential uh, action being taken against the individual association hacked into a computer quickly or accessed anything that, uh, in that way that they oughtn't to, uh, oughtn't to have done. In terms of protection that can be taken, we sort of both sort of touched on this a little bit, but just to sort of clarify then about the steps, the, the sort of legal or, or steps that could be taken in terms of putting things in place by the, um, the employer. What sort of things typically would you see, um, Peter, in the, um, in the UK for, for protection of confidential information so in contracts and so on. Yes. Okay. So, so I can look at the position where there is no contract and where you're relying on implied terms, and then we can look mm -hmm. at what should go in the contract. So when it comes to implied terms, the position isn't that bad. You would think if there was no contract in place or for whatever reason that can happen even nowadays, it's always better to have a contract. But if you were to rely upon implied terms, there's two I would mention. And the first is the implied term of confidentiality, and that's part of the wider duty of fidelity and loyalty owed by an employee. And that is something which applies to an employee to not remove or misuse or disclose any of the employer's confidential information. And that applies to information which they're told is confidential or which the employee ought reasonably to know it really is confidential and so it's not to be misused. There is then the equitable duty of confidence, which is separate to the contract, but it arises merely because an employer 
has given an employee that same confidential information. So you have two of these implied terms. That's the good news, but the bad news is those only again apply during employment. And so during, if, if we're looking at trade secrets, it will apply both during and after employment, but the rest of the information below that highest level of the hierarchy, you can't use those implied terms to protect the business. And so you have to then look at express terms to try and elevate whatever could be falling into the second or third category into being something worthy of protection with an express term. So that's how you sort of tip the balance in favor if you're an employer. So when it comes to the contract, it's good to have an express term, just as Amit has described, setting out what the employer regards as confidential, typical confidentiality agreement, which I'm sure we're all used to seeing. But in addition, there's other clauses which are pretty useful. So something like a garden leaf clause is gonna be very useful in protecting confidential information because it will determine when the employee is given notice that the employer can keep the employee away from the business for that notice period. They still have to be paid, but they won't have access to confidential information anymore. And there's a chance while they're on garden leave, the information they had access to could go stale. So in a way it does help. Mm. Also, it's useful in the contract to have clauses about good behavior in terms of confidential information the employees had access to and what happens to that on the exit. So either when the employee goes on garden leave or when the employee actually has their employment end, there should be clauses requiring the employee to return that information, to deliver it up to the employer, both company property in terms of devices, but also what they've held in terms of information. It could have been held on a personal device. So it's important to have that obligation because an implied term won't require someone to return property on the end of employment, strangely. Mm-hmm. It's also sensible with that to have in something about, you know, I've seen it creeping in, but the clause will say on termination, you will give us a warranty if we ask for it, that you have complied with this clause. That's very useful because people will give that even though they may have removed information. And so they can become unstuck later on if they're behaving dishonorably, because you can use that to show that they were dishonest in telling the employer, yes, I've returned everything, when in reality, they may have removed it in some way. The other typical way of protecting confidential information, and this is the way to guess around the difficulty of only being typically able to protect trade secrets, is to use a non-compete provision or some other post-termination restriction. And so at the very heart of the non-compete clause is the justification an employer has to protect its confidential information. And so it can say in a clause, once you've left our employment, you should not be going to join a competitor in a competing role. Because if you were to do so, that could expose us to damage because you could even inadvertently share confidential information and we can't have that. And so that is the justification for there being a non-compete of three, six or or 12 months after employment ends. So that's pretty much the way to get around the difficulty of defining what is a trade secret, Mm -hmm. what is mere confidential information. You have that. Also in contracts, or at least in IT policies, it's good to have good practice in terms of monitoring of systems and telling people what good behavior is with whether they can bring in their own device, telling them they're going to be monitored from a data protection sort of standpoint so they can't say they didn't give their consent and understanding what the framework is. For example, you shouldn't be sending emails home to personal email addresses, that kind of thing. It's just good sort of IT hygiene when it comes to practice during employment to point out, don't misuse our information in this way. And then the final thing to mention on the contract, it's good if you're recruiting employees 
to make it very clear in their offer letters or their contracts, we do not want you when you join us bringing confidential information from your old job. You know, it seems obvious, but mm. people will be very keen to hit the ground running and they could be wheeling in you know, bucket loads of information, wheelbarrows full, just because they get you know, excitable on joining. So it's worth pointing out that would be a breach of contract. And you know, the employer might even say, we're not going to continue the recruitment if we find you have breached any obligations like that to your previous employer. Well, thanks, Peter. All very good, uh, good points. And you, you think about the uh, the non-competes, particularly interesting because, of course, it's one of those things. It's, it's, well, it's one thing to be able to establish that someone has taken something out. You might be able to find that some way, or they may have given themselves away. We're coming on to talk about that a bit more. But uh, obviously, an individual who's taken some information and the employer doesn't know might be merrily using it without the employer finding out. So having a non-compete there is a good way to sort of you know protect against that clearly. I think Brian's saying as well, I mean, there have been attempts uh, in the past, ex-employers have tried to pursue cases without non-competes, but to say, well, you know, they've got our information, they, they mustn't be allowed to work because they might be using our information and, and the courts have you know, rejected that and say, if you, if you want a non-compete, you've got to have a non-compete, you can't get sort of get in by the back door. But Sam, for Amit, you were saying though, that that's it's different in the, in the, in the, in the US, that will, be, uh, that will be something you can do. At least at the moment, because I hear you're, you're doing away with non-competes, I understand. I've just, just heard that last week or two. So. We're trying. Yeah, the FCC is trying to do away with non-competes. No, so the inevitable disclosure doctrine is a backdoor to circumvent someone who doesn't have a non-compete. But judges are going to be, and courts are going to be cautious about doing it that way, for the obvious reason of you didn't contract that. And it's still a restraint on trade. So there's already, already a higher scrutiny. The landmark case that I would say set off this kind of process, but other people may not agree that this is necessarily the first version. But in any event, there was this case where a former executive kind of had the playbook of one company and went to a direct competitor and kind of knew the marketing strategy, sales strategy, all the type of stuff they were going to do. And the court said, look, in that role, you're inevitably going to disclose this trade secret high-level information to this competitor, and therefore, we're going to have you sit out for some period of time. It was like, I believe, six months. So that's kind of like the rare situation where it may be it may be used. And the employee also had stolen the playbook. So there was a combination of the theft of the playbook, the knowledge the employee was going to have even without it, and the fact that they were direct competitors made it a little bit easier for the court system. I like Peter's framing of like, there was a contract claims and then a non-contract claims. On the non-contract side, what we would have is similar. We'd have the Trade Secrets Act, both at the state and the federal level. There's fiduciary duties. So for example, an employee can't take a company's information to use as a competitive purpose while they're employed. There's conversion type claims. But one thing Peter touched upon, which um, I think is a really smart practice is um, we have claims for tortoise interference too. So for example, co a company hires an employee, that employee either violates a non-compete clause or has stolen their former employer's information. That company could get sued then for tortoise mm -hmm. interference with that contract or relationship with customer stuff like that. And that does happen. And so to go then to the contract side, I think what Peter laid out is fantastic. Have some language in there where the employee is representing, I don't have any covenants that prevent me from doing this job, and I haven't taken any company information. And sometimes I've seen these clauses written in a way that if a lawsuit occurs, the employee then would have to indemnify the employer and pay for those legal fees. And it gives the employer an out of, look, this is a defense. They gave us their representation in writing. And so that's why we hired this person. So it can be a very useful way then for an employer to do that hiring process. I also am a big fan of the acknowledgement forms of just saying at the end of the employment, 
um, including that clause in your confidentiality agreements of, I acknowledge I don't have any company information. I think it's good for the employee too, because then you get into a practice where you're looking through everything, making sure you don't have anything anymore, and it's a clean exit. Mm -hmm. And from the employer side, they can then try to make sure that everything is done correctly at the exit process. So those are definitely clauses that we, we see pretty often on the U.S. side. And then one actually thing that happens, and this is sometimes where the overlap occurs too, is there will be disclosures from the Trade Secret Act component. And there's a reason for that. The federal law indicates that if employees are, are told or informed in writing that they can disclose trade secrets in a governmental proceeding or to their attorneys, it can allow better remedies if someone violates the Federal Trade Secrets Act. So a lot of times contracts will have that disclosure within them for that reason. And I think it's a good practice to have confidentiality agreements. I think it'll help enforce the Trade Secret Act claim as well. I will say it's not a prerequisite necessarily. You can have a Trade Secret Act claim and still still explain or still argue and win that your information is secretly protected, it was password protected, it was siloed off, it was more properly identified, even without a confidentiality agreement. But a confidentiality agreement is just going to cover you more. And then the last thing I'll add then is the only other key clause in these agreements should be the remedies. Like what happens if there's a breach? What can the employer do? Um, can the employer send out notice to the prospective employer, stuff like that? I think those are also things to be thoughtful about. Um, and as you alluded to, as a law keeps changing in terms of non-competes and non-solicits on the U.S. side, and every state handles those clauses differently, it makes it more important than to have a strong confidentiality agreement just to at least protect the theft of information. Very good. No, very clear. Thank you. Thanks, Anna. Claudia, can I bring you in here, please? You've very patiently been listening to the lawyers here talking about sort of policies and contracts and all those sort of nice things. But when, what about sort of practical things? particularly from a sort of an IT perspective that, uh, say, founder of a business will, will want to have in place to make, or at least to try to guard against uh, information being taken away. What are the sort of things that could be put in place to set alarm bells ringing if, if there's some sort of attempted misuse or theft of information? So I'll start off by mentioning the obvious change we've had in our working environments post-pandemic. A lot of people are now obviously working remotely at some capacity. Unfortunately, what that does is it makes it easier for employees to take confidential information, you know, plug in a USB drive at home, no one's looking over your shoulder or accessing certain documents without anyone kind of seeing it. So the steps that I'll be mentioning, I think are really quite crucial for companies to put in place to make sure that they can try and prevent this from happening. So, you know, on the technical side, I the first thing I would mention would be companies making sure that they're only providing access of data to those that require it. So making sure that locations that data is stored in are secured and locked and only those people that actually need access should, should be given it. It does need to be kept on top of. And, you know, once someone doesn't need access any longer, then that should be revoked. Another point to bear in mind is that there should be a log of who had access and when so that there is, if there is an investigation further down the line, then, you know, these locations and documents are taken into consideration. So it's really important to have that log in place. Another thing they can do is also limit what employees can do with those documents. So provide you only access, uh, not allowing, you know, documents to be printed and so on. And, and that can be adjusted for each employee. 
as I mentioned earlier, now people can obviously do a lot on their devices without companies being aware, uh, given that people are at home. So another thing, another step that can be taken is by blocking the use of external storage devices on work laptops or, uh, you know, computers. So it's just making sure that USBs, you know, aren't being plugged in and aren't being allowed to copy data across. Uh, now to caveat here, it's not necessarily the only way that data can now be copied. Obviously, we have the cloud, everything's stored on the cloud, people are moving data across the cloud. But it is a step that can be taken to try and limit the different ways that that uh, employees can take confidential information. And then my final point is on identifying risky behavior as early as possible. So obviously employees could take information months and months before they leave a company. Now, from an investigation perspective, that's a lot harder to uncover because some of the steps that we take, that type of data can be overridden. So it's really important that companies have these systems in place that can monitor user behavior. And these are called user entity behavior analytics tools. And what they do is they detect patterns months before you know, an employee leaves a company and uncover patterns in user behavior that are identified as normal um, and also what could be risky behavior. They'll then send alerts as soon as that risky behavior is identified, which gives the company a chance to run an internal investigation and see you know, what's been happening. Or it can be sent over to an external investigation for a company like Alvarez and Marcel, the one I work for, to run externally. And that was my, that was my final point. Hmm, that's, that's, that's really interesting. I wasn't, wasn't, uh, wasn't actually aware of something I've actually used in, uh, used in practice. It sounds like the sort of, uh, so these, these systems have been placed to, like, to, to watching suspicious looking people in public spaces and the sort of odd movements that sort of, you know, people make if they're up to dodgy things. It certainly sounds like exactly. it's a useful, so it's... useful way of spotting potential uh, uh, yeah, it could be, you know, if an employee doesn't usually access particular folders or locations, and then all of a sudden, you know, within a week, they're constantly access that, accessing that information, then that can just be alerted and, and you know, you can look into that further and identify why those locations are being accessed in the first place. Hmm. So it's just seeing those patterns. Hmm. So it sounds like there are a number of good things that can be put in place, sort of protection measures, at least to, to give some warning. Yeah. In, uh, to businesses uh, thank you so um let's let's sort of move on from the uh identifying and possibly sort of protecting but uh the situation where there is a suspicion that there has been some sort of taking or misuse of uh, uh confidential information by uh by a, a, an executive i'd like to talk about the sort of steps typically that businesses will deploy against executive in that sort of uh position to uh take whatever action they uh they can. Amit, do you want to just sort of kick us off with a few few sort of indications, sort of sort of things that are quite sort of typical that you will you will see and that you would be advising businesses to to do in that type of situation? Typically, the first step is going to be some sort of letter, either to the employee or to, and maybe also to the new um, employer. So the person the employee ends up going to, and that letter will kind of just lay out: we think you stole our information. Um, here's what we're going to do: cease and desist, that type of thing. After that, it's going to be probably a pretty quick process. There's going to be a lawsuit filed and it could, depending upon, you know, it could include claims for breach of confidentiality agreements, trade secrets acts, um, some of the other laws we talked about, maybe fiduciary duties, tortoise interference, that type of stuff. And that employer is going to seek an injunction. And so 
they're going to seek an immediate injunction from a court to prevent the use of that information and a return of that information. And then they have to go through kind of the process of establishing that a temporary injunction should be entered. And a couple months later, then there's going to be the preliminary injunction process, which is typically a trial under discovery. I guess one part of the process too, maybe prior to sending all this out, is they would probably talk to someone like Claudia just to make sure they've done all their tech side of things to ensure they figure out what was taken, um, when it was accessed, et cetera. So a lot of times now you'll have data on um, a USB drive was put into a computer before the employee exited, or maybe there are emails being sent to and from. I know some companies pre-pandemic used to look at what was being printed six months to a year out before the employee left. So they'll try to gather all that evidence as well. But those would be the typical two steps is first a, co a, a correspondence to see what they can accomplish. They may ask for a sworn statement from the employee just to declare, hey, I don't have anything or I've returned it um, or I will return it. And then if that doesn't resolve things then a quick lawsuit, and then it just depends upon what's been contractually agreed to and what state and federal laws are implicated. Thank you. Lisa, your, uh, your sort of experience, how do these things uh, often, often unfold? Yeah, it's, it's very similar. I think um, it's interesting. I was reflecting on a client who just before Christmas, I was on the phone to them because they were about to let the guy go um, because he hadn't passed his probation period. And they'd called him to a meeting to say, you know, meeting with HR, or obviously one of those meetings no one wants in their diary. And the guy obviously suspected that the game was up. And we were talking about, you know, what sort of settlement package could be offered, allow him, you know, an elegant exit. And while I was on the phone to HR, they, they were, something was triggered on their system to show what he was accessing. And it was just in real time here. Actually, there about, and then. Actually, yeah, sort of he's gone into this, he's gone into that, he's gone into this. So, you know, I had dreams of heading to the Supreme Court with some huge case for, for what he'd <laughs> taken. And I saw my name up in lights and, and all that. But they were very interesting. They just said, look, he's an idiot. He knows he's not meant to be contact, you know, getting all of this stuff. We've caught him red handed. And we talked about all the remedies, but they were also very keen to understand the human element because they could have made a fuss, but they also said, you know, we've suffered no damage. Thank God we've got this software to show this kind of activity and we can put it down to great stupidity. We're glad he's leaving. But, you know, they also appreciated they held the future career of that guy in their hands. You know, they had to think about with experience and whether they really wanted to cause him a lot of trouble for, you know, the way he was ready to steal from them, having accessed all of these documents and either taking photos of them on his screen or started printing them. So, so that's where it can end quite swiftly. And people can decide, look, you don't need legal action here. You just need a sensible head and a, a wrap on the knuckles for this guy. And hmm. um, no surprise, he didn't get that settlement package. You know, it was a case of <laughs> yeah. and out the which, door. Which was probably enough damage uh, yeah, as far as he was concerned. And, uh, yes, yeah. 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 But that's a rarity because, you know, operating in a regulated environment and how serious all of this activity is, it can get pretty nasty. So um, I think the only thing I'd add is more just a bit more detail around the practicalities of that initial letter. I think it's very similar to how Amit has described it. Um, I think the aim really is to looking, looking at how much damage has been done and how can it be rectified. And, you know, writing a letter from either an external law firm or the employee, uh, employer itself and just saying, look, these are the obligations you're bound by. This is what our investigation has revealed, which means you're in breach of those obligations. And now we need you to quickly cooperate with us and give us some assurances. And so we typically write seeking um, undertakings, which is kind of a new contract, uh, ensuring that, first of all, they 
agree to be bound by the obligations they've breached. So you're not going to make misuse of this information. You also ensure they deliver up any of that information as quickly as possible um, and any other company property. If it's soft copy information, they should return it on a hard disk so that that can all be indexed and people can look at what has been returned. Um, there may also be involvement of forensic support just to do an image of either an iCloud or uh, their Gmail or any other personal devices to make sure that any of this information can be deleted and not retained. There's the threat of litigation then, so they should preserve all evidence in keeping with their obligations to the court if a case were to arise. And they should also have written sort of assurances they're not going to tamper with anything or change any passwords before this is all resolved. We can also press for the individuals to give witness statements or even sworn affidavits to explain what they've done with the information, whether it's been shared with anyone, and also seek assurances they're going to comply with their post-termination restrictions. And so the idea is, you know, a letter is written in very firm terms under short timescales to get cooperation as soon as possible. And if that doesn't work, you know, you're off to the races and you may need to go to court. But short of an injunction, there is a way to try and allow sensible heads to prevail by providing contractual assurances. That's, that's good. That's all clear. I mean, I think, um, and certainly I, I find a practice the case that uh, an individual who is, uh, who's been caught out, um, who was, you know, thought they got away with something and then realises that the, uh, the game's up. Lots of cases is just going to sort of come quietly and, and try to deal with things without exploding sort of too much given all that's involved and particularly the, you know, the risk of big, uh, big litigation. Um, certainly some people do some, you know, stupid things. I can remember one chap who was resigning and I think he just, you know, went out and got incredibly drunk and then went home and just sort of, you know, downloaded everything he could get his hands on. Um, and then was you know, quite surprised when I was sort of telling him, I don't think you've really got much of a case here to, uh, <laughs> I think it's time, time to be as contrite as you can be. And, and uh, you know, within reason give you know give what you got what give what you can um you know other people of course uh, try to sort of push things a bit uh, a bit more and, and then things can you know, as you say develop into bigger uh, bigger litigation it's quite interesting what you're saying there about you know the, you know the client view of well that's you know we, we've sort of there's enough damage if you like we don't want to ruin this sort of person's uh, person's career i know i've seen cases where uh, as i'm sure you have as well and i mean too where the the employer actually just really wants to destroy this individual now because it's just you know, so affronted at what, what's happened. I remember one case a few years ago we we're dealing with where the individual did stuff he was just like really stupid, and um, I can even remember on this occasion he was uh, I think he was he was being asked to hand over his uh, his his phone so they could security could check it, and he made some excuse that he'd got uh, I don't know. He got some stomach upset, went dashing off to the toilets and was sort of desperately trying to, <laughs> which naturally uh, is, is not the way forward and uh, no one would, uh, would would advocate that sort of desperation. And then he just couldn't get out. He was locked in litigation. There was sort of no way out, just from this sort of, you know, stupidity and all. But uh, yeah, people doing crazy, uh, crazy, crazy things. In terms of, I mean, the sort of things that, you know, people might come up with here, if you're, you know, being accused of, seeing an executive who's being accused of uh, taking information, I mean, uh, not, not everyone clearly is going to is gonna put their hands up to it. There will be people who will, you know, think they can sort of take this on, come up with all sorts of excuses and defences. I mean, what, what, what sort of things, in your experience, do, you know, get, gets argued here? What sort of things are 
good good defenses legitimate defenses and and what sort of things are just never gonna gonna wash what Hamilton Peter what sort of things would you so this isn't like a defense per se but I think it's a good practice which is um just be proactive like anytime I'm talking to a client and I'm helping them kind of navigate an exit and an onboard somewhere one of the first conversations I had is about it's about creating a wall between the personal and the professional because a lot of times what I've seen on the back end where people get in, get a letter is because they were using their personal email to do work. And mm -hmm. so maybe they're forwarding, and this would happen, I think it was happening a lot at the start of the pandemic. Um, and it was probably a carryover from just like how technology has evolved, but people would, you know, send um, an email from their personal account related to some work they're doing or forward an email from their work account to a personal account so they can print something while they're traveling. And those are nefarious. Those aren't nefarious. Those are just like innocent little things people are doing so they can do their job. And so the conversation I have with folks now is don't do that, <laughs> like create that wall, especially, you know, like we've evolved a lot over the last couple of years, um, but there's really no reason why you should be sending anything to your personal account. And if you keep that line, there's nothing for Claudia to find because then nothing happens. So just be cautious about that. You know, a lot of times people will say, look, I was just grabbing like personal photos off my computer or stuff like that. Well, don't put them on the computer. <laughs> I can afford that. You know, like, and so what I've done, on the, what I try to do now on the front end is use all the conversations I've had with people on the back end as warning signs. Mm -hmm. And then of like, what is going to happen and how the exit's going to look like so we can get ahead of that. But legitimate defenses could be something Peter and I have already talked about. Like this information is already in the public sphere. It's not confidential. It's my personal information. It was an accident, those types of things. And I think most companies are going to understand that. Um, I think where you have bad defenses are someone's going to a competitor and they do want to do something nefarious and they just got caught. And then it's, I think, a tricky situation of like, how do you best handle that? Yeah, yeah, that sounds, that sounds good. Uh, what, what about, I mean, sometimes you have people say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm giving up. I've got, you know, my own gripes and complaints against the, uh, the business. I'm going to be litigating. This is my evidence. I need to get this together. I don't trust that you will... You know, keep the information. Therefore, I'm taking it so I can, you know, pursue my case. Is that is that is that something that you ever hear? And does and does that wash basically? I hear it, and I think it. I do think that's a better argument too, because for a couple of reasons. One, a lot of the disclosures contracts will have now will say you can use this stuff insofar it's for you know some government issue or it's for a potential claim. Because um, that's not a misuse of confidential information. That's using information for the purposes of your own matters. And I think there is going to generally be some sort of exception to any confidentiality agreements or public policy. So I guess the line there would just be, are you using the information to compete or harm the company and misuse their stuff? Or are you using it for your own legal claims against the company? Um, mm -hmm. And that does happen a lot for a whole host of reasons. So I think that's an issue an employer probably would raise. But at the same time, I think courts are going to be more sympathetic to an employee in that circumstance. Mm, that's interesting. And it's, it's one, one thing you know, we've often encountered of people, you, know, you, you find out that people have got information that they shouldn't have. And, and it's, uh, because they'll say, oh, well, this is going to be disclosed in the case. So, well, it's all very well, but we want it back. <laughs> it can be disclosed right. separately, but we want it back now. Thank you very much. Um, and you know, that's a separate sort of issue going forward. But uh, that's an interesting, interesting point. Just another thing that um, uh, sometimes sort of comes up, and we sort of touched on before, but around the um, you know the misuse and, and the sort of the even the sort of criminal side of stuff. I mean, is there did the 
uh, authorities ever sort of get involved in these sorts of things, whether or not things are whether or not the role is uh, is is regulated. Is that uh, do you ever see sort of businesses using that as a sort of particular particular threat uh, in this sort of situation, or just to add a little bit to the uh, to the mix? So I mean, we could be talking about sort of uh, uh, well, either computer misuse or sort of taking database, uh, you know, database information and so on. Is there anything around that that you? The two things I've seen, um, and I think this is similar to the UK side too. One is um, there is a criminal anti-hacking statute or the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So mm -hmm. companies will try to use the civil component of that as a way to get additional remedies or to get into a different type of courtroom. Separately, sometimes I've seen companies file essentially like a police report or an FBI report about the stolen information. So that could happen. I think generally companies are slightly cautious about using the criminal stuff as an explicit mm -hmm. threat. On the flip side, and, and this is, goes back to your last question, an employee may have information because they want to be a whistleblower for a company's irregularities. And that is definitely allowed um, both under the Trade Secret Acts and also other state and federal laws that you can retain information for that purpose. So the flip side is also likely to. And of course, there's the whole regulatory side as well that comes in. And um, I've just been working on a on a case, in fact, with, with Claudia, where an individual who's working uh, in-house as a lawyer was accused of taking information. There's this whole question about whether or not she should be reported to the Solicitor's Regulation Authority as a result. And the client was sort of taking the view, well, they didn't want to, uh, they, they weren't obliged to because they weren't regulated themselves and they, they didn't really want to damage the individual's um, career to that extent. So they, as long as you get information back and, uh, and, and you know, we're, we're sort of satisfied with that. But again, it just adds another another thing for an executive in particular industries that, that you know, could be very, very um, you know, problematic if the founders have done all of this. Um, I'd like to bring uh, Claudia back in, uh, if I can, please, uh, now, just to talk about the whole investigation thing, because so this is something that is uh, you know, more and more sort of commonplace, that um, businesses are, are looking to carry out investigations where there is a suspicion of, uh, of misuse or that uh, someone departing has taken information. Um, and... You know, I think that you know, there are perhaps all these sort of ideas out there about all the magic that forensic IT people can perform and, and all the things they you know, can find and maybe can't find. So, so Claudia, can you just tell us a little bit about typically how an investigation works, the sort of things that are looked at and, uh, and what, what really isn't, is and isn't possible uh, in, in the course of an investigation? Yeah, so um, digital investigators will typically get involved at a stage where the employee has left a company, uh, right? But, and, and I guess a company has suspicions or they've run their own internal analysis and identified those risks. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, if risks are identified at an earlier stage through user monitoring, then we can get involved earlier. So before the employee essentially leaves. Uh, the, the type of things that can be done. So firstly, we can analyze files, folders and network drives that were recently accessed by the employee um, just to see the kind of information that they'd be looking at. And this can be done on their you know, company devices, such as their laptops and mobile phones. And, you know, see if, if that information was moved elsewhere. So that takes me kind of to the next point on uh, analyzing um, USB activity. So if 
you're not limiting data being copied to external devices, then it's it's a really important to check that USB activity. So which drives have been plugged in, USB drives or other external hard drives uh, have been plugged in and um, at what times and dates they've been plugged in. Now, there is a limit here um, because we can't essentially see which files were copied across. There are remnants of that information, but that can be tricky to uncover and, and that data can be overridden quite quickly. So, you know, that's a kind of limitation. And you also won't know, unless you have the USB, if those documents were then copied elsewhere. Uh, so, you know, if they were copied onto another computer. Um, so yeah, unless you actually have the USB to hand to, to analyze. Um, but going back on things that we can do, um, so we can also check cloud storage uh, services and web browser activity. So, you know, if an employee has been accessing Dropbox and let's say the company doesn't use Dropbox as a you know cloud service, then that can be investigated further. You know, it could be a personal account that files have been copied across to. And on the web browser activity part, so, you know, seeing what kind of searches people have run, um, I mean, we, we've come across someone that just ran a search that said, can I copy files to a USB without detection? Obviously, <laughs> uh, that's a flag right there. <laughs> but you can also see if they've been accessing other email clients. So I know that this was mentioned before, um, but, you know, if they've been accessing personal email accounts, again, to kind of send data across uh, or to copy data onto their personal email accounts. Um, and then, you know, related to that web traffic is the analysis of, their email traffic, so their work email traffic. Uh, again, seeing if there's been any email sent to their personal accounts um, or if they've been emailing competitors as well. And you'd kind of, you know, for us, we'd need to know information about who those competitors could be so that we can, you know, present that information. Um, but we can also more or less identify where there is a personal account, um, you know, by looking at the names, checking that it's you know standard gmail account not not a business account and on in terms of you know going back to again what can't be done there's a few more points to cover there so uh, if you know i mentioned this before but if an employee has been copying data months prior to the termination of employment then again that information gets overridden quite quickly and we can't uncover as much which is why that monitoring piece um, really should be in place because that that will retain that information. If information has been sent over by email, so again to personal accounts or to someone else, and there's no uh, data retention policy in place for for that work email account, and those emails have been deleted, um, then again, if we're outside of you know if there is a retention policy and it's thirty days, and if we're outside of that retention policy, we can't uncover those emails. Um, and if there's no retention policy in place, then again, we can't uncover those emails. And then thinking about, I guess, you know, the advancements of technology and how people are using devices nowadays, but taking photos from a personal device and us not being given access to that personal device, especially if those documents were accessed during a time where the employee, you know, it wouldn't have flagged anything where they were actually using those documents and they took a photo, then we wouldn't be aware of that we wouldn't be able to investigate that unless we had um, that personal device to look at. Um, and then lastly is, 
you know, thinking about social media, right? It's uh, kind of connected to my previous point and taking photos, but you can also send photos now via social media. So either to other people or to uh, your own, you know, other accounts that you might have. And again, unless we have something where we can track that, unless we know the details of those personal social media accounts, or we have the personal device that those were used on, um, then we can't really track or uncover any of that detail. Well, thanks, Chloe. Lots of people thought that, and some really good, good sort of tools and methods, clearly, that can be used, and, and also limitations, as you say, uh, on things, and no doubt anybody's looking to sort of stay ahead where they uh, where they can and, and uh, find different ways of uh, of avoiding uh, detection here uh, and it just strikes me as from what you say there about the importance in lots of cases clearly of getting getting hardware getting hold of hardware so you can carry out the um the necessary checks and whether that's uh, through um uh, action that may need to be taken to have delivery up of certain things where where possible uh in, including often you know work equipment we, we you know had cases where individuals will just refuse to hand over their you know work devices um or even dispute that it's a work device and i paid for this myself uh, you know particularly in a lot of so you know smaller new businesses oh well you know i just i was told i could go out and buy a laptop um therefore i did this it's my own i don't have to hand it hand it back Number one case, we were going to a lot of diesel, you know, proving who had actually paid for it so we could get the thing back. That then cracked the case because we found out that this guy had been accessing all our company's systems after we left and taking loads and loads of information. And, th and the point as well about you know people just taking photos, like you know, sit sitting sitting at home or wherever, just taking photos of what's on your, your screen. Um, I suppose for some people, there's an easy way around. And uh, I, I, I remember coming back actually, across that actually <laughs> In one sort of quite amusing case where the guy clearly thought he'd, he'd you know acted brilliantly by just taking loads and loads of screenshots with his camera of of all this customer information uh, and then you know decided from his from his own uh you know account to uh, you know he'd send it through his own personal email account uh but unfortunately in, in typing the email account in he was sending it to it automatically filled with his old employer's uh, account uh, his you know account of his old employer which immediately went through to his former sales manager and the whole thing popped up on his screen so we had records of everything he'd sent himself um, and quite amusingly in there there was also a photograph he'd proudly taken a photo of his new jag parked on the drive <laughs> in amongst all this data and the client thought well we'll have that <laughs> <laughs> we know what we're going for now so no, but very helpful thanks Claudia. that's been really useful and also to uh, Emmett and uh, and Peter for that um great uh discussion uh we've just got a couple of minutes for some uh questions uh and maybe even some answers uh, too if we're if, if we can uh before we uh, before we wrap up we're coming through from Clive hi Clive yes um I've, I've come across uh, examples of uh, LinkedIn contacts being uh, copied, data scraped uh, for um, uh, their personal purposes. I wondered what um, the legal uh, restraints are in, in this respect, because it seems to be a growing problem. Yeah. yeah. What I've seen on the US side is um, there have been courts discussing if let's say hypothetically an employee has like a non-solicitation clause, the courts have discussed whether or not sending a LinkedIn request to someone can be solicitation that violates that. And the answers I've seen so far are no on that front of if you send someone a general 
LinkedIn message or request form. That's not solicitation. Obviously, it's what happens a lot of times, though, um, where employees get in trouble there is their LinkedIn is still connected to their former email account, former employer account. And so the employer then sees these connections coming in and then, then saying something nefarious is happening on the solicitation side. So I think if you're if you're doing a general request, post on LinkedIn, that type of thing, it's probably not solicitation. If you start going a step further and try to steal business, that's going to be a problem. Um, I haven't seen too much case law on just like if you, you know, if you have your LinkedIn contacts, you're generally going to be able to keep those. Um, and a lot of people, if you're connected to someone, you can see typically their contacts. And so that's probably public information. I haven't seen a case litigated on someone doing something like that where they're, I guess, trying to data mine other people's LinkedIn information. I think if you, prior to an exit, went into your company system and tried to steal those contacts, then I think it would be an issue. If it's you go publicly on the LinkedIn website and look through contacts and then send requests, that's probably okay. I don't know Thank that you. correct answer. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Well, look, we are just about at time. Um, uh, if there are any final, if there's a final question, please shout now. Otherwise, uh, I will thank uh, Claudia, uh, Amit, and Peter for uh, very, uh, very interesting. Uh, hopefully, a useful discussion for everyone. I've really enjoyed it. So, thank you all for uh, for joining us today and uh, and taking part. That's much appreciated. Um, before we go, I would just like to give a plug for a couple of uh, ifsy things coming up. Uh, the next event we have is uh, on the 9th of March. That's going to be uh, in person, um, and it is dealing responsibly with historical sexual misconduct allegations made by and against senior executives and founders. Further details on this uh, will be sent out very soon. Uh, and also uh, just to say that our annual conference um, is on the 20th uh, of June uh, this year. So nice sunny days to look forward to, hopefully. And uh, that's in London. We'll be sending out uh, an update soon with topics and details and speakers and how to register and so on. So uh, do look out for that. And uh, we look forward to having as many of you join us for those sessions uh, as we can. So, so just let me say thank you again uh, to our participants, our panel members, to everyone uh, for joining us uh, today. Uh, and uh, hope to see you all again soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.